You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. Yeah, so, you know, when I think about um, my work with the Dog Aging Project, I I am a practicing veterinarian. So I'm a veterinary internist and I still practice. I practice here at Texas A&M. And so I meet owners of aging dogs as part of my daily practice. And one of the things that comes up for some of my clients is this experience that many of us who have loved an aging dog have had where you get to a certain point where your dog won't use the stairs. And I say won't use the stairs because what we're talking about here is a dog who you know, doesn't necessarily have a specific diagnosis, doesn't have a dislocated joint, doesn't have a broken bone. And if forced, probably could use the stairs, but these older dogs choose to stop using the stairs. Sometimes they will go up for a period of time, but won't come down. Other times they seem more comfortable going down. And the issue at hand is this is a pretty big quality of life problem for for dogs and their owners, right? So if your dog has been accustomed to roaming around the house and now can't roam around the house, if your dog is a small breed dog and it needs to be on the other floor of the house, you could just pick it up and move it. Or if you go to a dog park and there are stairs, you can just pick it up and move it. But if your dog is a Labrador, that's not a choice. And so I'm very interested in this experience of what is happening to those old dogs who won't use the stairs. Do they lack the strength? Maybe. Do they lack the balance? Maybe. Do they lack the depth perception? Maybe. Is it a combination of all of those things? Maybe. And in veterinary medicine, our focus for for so long has been on diagnosing and treating disease. If the experience of giving up on stairs is expected for aging dogs, we don't acknowledge it as a disease. We don't treat it as a disease. And if we go looking for a diagnosis and we don't find paralysis or a fracture or dislocation or some overt metabolic disorder, then we say, well, you know, it's probably quote unquote, just aging. And just aging is a pretty important experience for those of us who love an old dog. And so one of the things that I'm most excited about in the Dog Aging Project is hopefully to expand our understanding of what is happening for that older dog who won't use the stairs, not can't use the stairs, but won't use the stairs. And are there things we can do to either anticipate that so we're ready for it, potentially rehabilitate that so that there is a longer period of time when the dog can maintain its normal activities in and around the house, and also just talk about it so that so that owners who love these dogs can be prepared for this experience, can navigate this experience, and, and we have language surrounding it that's a little bit more precise and a little bit more compassionate than, well, he's just old, right? He's just gotten old. Um, and so I, I think that that's something as a practitioner, this this gap between a perfectly normal young adult dog and a geriatric dog with very specific diagnoses, there's this wide gap that we don't currently have excellent and precise language or assessment for in veterinary medicine. Hi, everyone. Today, we've got a special episode if you're in the veterinary space or if you just love your pet dogs. We're speaking with Dr. Katie Creevy, a founder of the Dog Aging Project, a longitudinal study to understand how genes, lifestyle, and environment influence aging. Ultimately, the project aims to help pets and people increase their health span, or the period of life spent free from disease. 
You've heard us talk about the Dog Aging Project on our show before, but not with a founder of the study. So in this episode, Dr. Creevy shares some interesting findings about diet, cognitive function, and physical activity in pet dogs. As a quick note, this interview was recorded in 2022, so some of the comments or questions might seem a little out of place. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. So Katie, thank you. First thing for being here. You're our first guest in probably more than four months. So welcome to our show. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad I could, uh, glad I could take the time to do this with you guys. This is fun. Yes. Yes. So today we're talking about the dog aging project, which is it, are you a co-founder? Would you call yourself, are you a PI on that? Co-PI? Tell me the, tell me the lingo. Yeah, well, it's it's slightly confusing. So yes, I am one of the founders. Uh, there are three of us that are the founders of the project. And the nature of the grant is such that there is a single overall PI, which is Daniel Promislow. But then within the grant are a number of separate projects that each have their own PIs. And I am a co-PI of a couple of those. Right. And so I, I really want to emphasize how just thankful I am for you taking the time to talk to us, because I know here at CSU, we have a few, you know, co-PIs on some dog aging project related studies, but it's really cool that we get to have a co-founder come and speak to us today. So thank you again. Oh, my pleasure. So since it has been a while since on our show, we've talked about the dog aging project. I wonder if first you can give us just like your 30 second elevator pitch of what the dog aging project is. And then I'm also interested in talking to you about some of the findings, the recent findings from DAP, because we've had a couple guests come on the show and talk just generally about what the dog aging project is. But there's some cool new findings that are coming out that I'd love to hear directly from a, a, a co-founder of DAP. So so what's the what's the 30 second pitch for DAP? Yep. So I generally say that the dog aging project is a large scale, long term longitudinal study of the health of aging companion dogs in the home. And all of those adjectives are important. The large scale means all over the country, anybody can participate. The long-term means our intent is this is a forever study. Um, We pursue our funding in chunks of years, but our goal is this is a forever study. And the longitudinal part means we follow an individual dog through that individual dog's life. We're not comparing one group of dogs who are five to a different group of dogs who are 10. We're following individual dogs throughout their lives. Um, And finally, that it is a companion dog project. These are dogs experiencing the diversity of households and lifestyles and diet and genetic background and social environment and activities that dogs in this country can experience. And we want all of that richness in our population. Okay, let's switch gears and talk about another outcome from some of the Dog Aging Project research, um, which is still on the, the, the line of longevity and longer lifespan. 
feeding times and maybe how much you feed dogs. I know we've we've talked on our show at the center about caloric restriction and the idea that if maybe if you just eat less or you eat at certain times a day, it seems to be good in mammals <laughs> for helping with longevity. So so what does the dog aging project have to say about that? Yeah, so we have a couple of interesting um, observations and again right now cross-sectional data. The first thing that I want to make sure is clear is that our first data release that we're currently analyzing is cross-sectional data only. And so what that means is we have this first set of data on just over 27,000 dogs in which we've asked the owners a very comprehensive set of questions about their dogs' lives and health. And we only have that first year that we're analyzing. So when I talk about some of these things, I'm talking about comparing dogs across different ages. Over time, as I mentioned, the longitudinal part of our study means that next year and the year after that, we'll have new answers from the same original dogs. And so now we'll really be able to start to put a timeline on some of these observations and and explain causation, which thing came first. But currently, we're talking about cross-sectional data. We have a lot of questions about diet in our surveys to owners. So we try to do a very detailed, and we've actually revamped it so it's even more detailed now, questions about not only what they feed, how much they feed, how frequently they feed, how often they change the food, the the sources of the food. So we're really, we know that this is an area where people have a great deal of interest and we're trying to collect as much detailed data as we can. You know, diet feels like one of the most modifiable things you can do to promote health because of course we're all going to eat and we're all going to feed our dogs. So here's something you're going to do anyway. You're going to do it every day. Can we do it in the most healthful and effective way possible. Um, So I I know that that's why there's so much passion about, you know, identifying and and choosing appropriate foods and feeding patterns for dogs. So the the study that we've released recently that um, a lot of people have been talking about, again, is cross-sectional data. So what we looked at is owner-reported frequency of feeding. Do you feed your dog once a day, twice a day, or more than twice a day? And we compared that to the health status of the dog. So owner-reported diagnoses. How many diagnoses does your dog have in each of these various categories that um, I've already described a little bit? And so what we found is that feeding once daily is associated with a lower number of total diagnoses, basically period, right? So it's also true within certain categories, but overall, um, specifically gastrointestinal disease, dental disease, orthopedic disease, kidney disease, and liver or pancreas diseases. Dogs who are fed just once daily have a lower risk of having diseases in any of those categories reported by their owners. Um, additionally, dogs who are fed just once daily had better scores on our cognitive instrument that we ask owners to provide. So this is a survey-based cognitive instrument that basically is trying to recognize signs of dementia. High scores are associated with dementia. Low scores are associated with normal um, mental and cognitive function, non-demented function. And so, again, having once daily feeding was associated with having lower scores in this dementia scoring system. Um, There are a couple of really important caveats about this. Again, this is cross-sectional data, not longitudinal data. So we cannot say that it is the case that because the dog was fed once daily, it got less disease. In fact, it is at least as likely, and it is possibly more likely, that the cause goes the other way. Because the dog has a liver or pancreas disorder, I have to feed my dog multiple small meals a day, otherwise he throws up, right? So it's quite possible that the association actually goes in the other direction. 
the reason dogs are fed once daily is because those dogs are not currently sick with anything. And so the owners haven't had to develop these kind of complicated feeding regimes. Um, so we won't know the answer to that for a little while longer, right? Now that we've inventoried these dogs in the first year of, of our data that we're analyzing, the next question is, over time, is it the case that dogs who are only fed once daily go on to develop less disease, right? Or is it the case that dogs who go on to develop diseases start to be fed more times than once per day? And, and I don't yet know the answers to those things, but we intend to pay close attention to that over time. You know, when I first adopted my dog, I tried to do once a day feeding and he laughed at me and said, I'm going to exercise restraint and I'm going to eat in the morning and save the rest until dinner time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe if I took the bowl away, he would learn that he had one opportunity, but <laughs> maybe that's well, my fault. And so that's an interesting observation too, because one of the feeding strategies that some of our owners report is free feeding right? And, and free feeding is a really interesting phenomenon in dogs, because of course, there are some dogs for whom that won't work. There are dogs who, as soon as you put the food down, they're going to eat absolutely everything you put in front of them until it's gone. And there are other dogs, I had a dog like this, who was free fed, I would put the food down and she would most days she would eat it. And some days she wouldn't eat anything. And then the next day she would eat more. And um, it's interesting to ponder whether the dog's ability to be free fed is also a predictor of health, right? So you mentioned caloric restriction, and there's a lot of information and studies that suggest that lifetime caloric restriction is, on average, better for most mammals than lifetime caloric repleteness or, or certainly overload. And so is there something about a dog who is willing to, as you said, eat part of the food and save the rest until later? Is that dog metabolically already equipped to experience fewer calories over its lifetime, even when more calories were offered? And is that itself imparting some sort of a longevity or survival benefit. So we do, um, we do offer owners the ability to document that their dog is free fed. And if their dog is free fed, we ask them to try to estimate kind of on average days, how much their dog eats or how frequently their dog eats when it's free fed. So I hope that we'll be able to um, identify some, some information related to that choice as well. Yeah, no, that's definitely an interesting question to ponder. And um, you mentioned dementia just a few minutes ago about what what was it? Eating once a day was more associated with lower rates of dementia. Is that the correct way to say it? That's yes. correct. So being fed once daily and having lower scores on our particular um, dementia index are associated. We don't know which one is causing the other, but right now we just know that those two things are associated. So what would you say is the takeaway for the listener when it comes to feeding schedules and dogs, but also just maybe the translational component for humans with what you know right now? Yeah. I, you know, unfortunately, I'm not sure that I know anything right now based on the Dog Aging Project data that I didn't already know, right? I mean, as a rule, we should all eat less and exercise more. I think that the data about eat less and exercise more are pretty robust in anybody that's ever looked at it. Um, and so I think our data certainly don't say anything different just yet. Um, but of course, we all want a little bit more nuance to that description. Like, how much is less if we say eat less? Or as you already asked, does it matter when in the day? Does it matter that I have a single meal? Or does it matter that I have the same number of calories spread over as many meals as I care for? Or does it matter which time of day I eat my particular meal? 
Or is there so much individual variation that we can't make a uniform recommendation for people? I mean, we certainly know that experientially, we feel differently about it, right? If you talk to people who, oh, I never like to eat a big breakfast. I don't feel well if I eat a big, or I don't like to eat late at night. I I don't sleep well if I eat late at night. So there are some experiential factors for people. And then for our dogs, while we can't ask them how they feel about it, we can observe what they do, right? Like your dog who was perfectly happy to leave half the food so he could eat it later. And another dog who would be completely incapable of leaving anything in the bowl and walking away from it, right? So so there are some components that are, whether it's the enjoyment that a person or dog gets from their meals, or whether there are differences in individual genetics or metabolism that make it so that that really is the preferred way for that animal or person to eat for their best health. I think there's quite a lot more nuance that we hope to glean beyond just eat less and exercise more. Yes. It's like the universal question that we all want, like you said, more nuance to. Because <laughs> I think that's something, like you were saying, we all have to eat every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that in and of itself is what makes it difficult is like, we have to do this, but maybe we don't, we're like ingrained in our behaviors and we don't want to change the way we do this, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, the notion of, um, of meals, right? So when we published this paper about the once daily feeding, some of the feedback in social media sites and other places were people expressing an opinion that it was mean to just feed a dog once a day. Like that's mean. Um, well, it is, maybe it's mean, or maybe it's kind because it promotes good health. And maybe if you only eat once a day, you become accustomed to eating once a day so that you don't feel hungry when it's not meal times, right? I mean, those of us raised in this country where we tend to eat three times a day, you're sort of culturally expected to eat three times a day. But is it the case that you're always hungry at exactly those times? Maybe. Maybe you're just habituated to eating at those times. And I think it's very difficult to tease those things apart, right? How much of my wanting breakfast is because I'm hungry and how much of my wanting breakfast is every morning when I get up, eat breakfast and I've done it my whole life. I I don't know. I'm not sure I can tell. Exactly. And you would hope that if you transition to a different schedule or or only eating once a day or something, hormones would fall in line and you wouldn't get as hungry throughout the day. I think that's the idea we all hope for. But it then comes back and falls on that ingrained habit of like, oh, man, I miss eating breakfast when I used to have breakfast at this time, you know? Right. 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 And I think the other thing about our dogs is um, we're in total control of what they eat. And so I think for our dogs, even then, even more than for ourselves, people aspire to the best possible feeding because they know they can. The dog eats exactly what I give it. It doesn't sometimes take the car and run to Taco Bell and get a snack after midnight, right? It doesn't do that. Um, But I might stop at a fast food restaurant after midnight and have a snack that's high in calories, high in fat. And I know I didn't need it, but I wanted it, right? So so the control of urges or impulses or bad decision making, right, that we have over our dogs, I think it helps people feel like, since I can totally control it, I should do everything the best way possible for this dog. The dog can't cheat. I can cheat, but the dog can't cheat. And so I think people are even more strongly motivated for their dogs than for themselves, because if I could tell a person, here is the perfect diet plan that will optimize your healthy longevity. Most people would probably still occasionally cheat, right? So so even if they knew that information for themselves, we all know that we might not be able to hold to it. But if I know that information for my dog, I can hold him to it 
because I control what goes in the food bowl. So I, I think yeah. it's a, it's an area where a lot of people have a lot of passion, a lot of energy. Oh yeah. And also speak of my dog, he's freaking mm-hmm. out right now. So I want to get, um, cause we have a couple more questions to get through. Mm-hmm. I want to get back to this dementia piece because I know that's another area that you do have some preliminary findings from the dog aging project about doggy dementia and like rates mm-hmm. of cognitive decline. So, so what are some studies that you have about that? Yeah. So we've done a few different things. And, uh, as I mentioned, we're right now using an owner reported, um, survey of signs of dementia. And in our current work, we're expanding that to two additional components of dementia that we'll measure in coming years. One is a more nuanced owner reported survey that we will help the owners complete. And the other is actual cognitive tasks that owners perform in their home with the dog. And so in this case, we're not just looking for signs of overt dementia, like getting lost behind the furniture or failing to recognize familiar people, but we're trying to challenge the dog to perform a cognitive task with the hope that we might recognize a decline in that performance earlier than we would have recognized for the signs of overt dementia. So both of those things are relatively new components and we don't have any data yet to analyze from those, but that's the direction that we're headed. Um, The data that we do have to analyze from our first owner-reported instrument of, of signs of dementia, a couple of interesting things have happened. So first, the vast majority of the dogs in the Dog Aging Project score non-demented. So there is a small proportion of dogs who fall into the part of this scoring system that's classified as dementia. The vast majority of don't. But even within that sort of two groups, there is a trend. And so as dogs age, on average, their scores move a little bit higher and a little bit higher over time. Not all dogs, even at advanced ages, qualify as having dementia according to this particular scale, but the tendency is as they get older, they are more likely to fall into that group. So this corresponds to our expectations, right? We tend to think of dementia as a disease of aging dogs, and while the rates of dementia are not super high in our dog aging project pack, they are higher in the older age groups than in the younger age groups, so that makes sense. The other thing that um, we have recently published that's interesting to people is, again, an association. This is just cross-sectional data, two things happening at the same time, and we don't know which one caused the other, but an association between physical activity and non-dementia. So the more physically active the dog is, the less likely it is to have a diagnosis of dementia on this particular scale. The dogs who have a diagnosis of dementia are somewhat less physically active than than those who don't have a diagnosis of dementia. We know in people that physical activity um, reduces the risk of development of of Alzheimer's disease and Alzheimer's-like dementia. So so that's an interesting area to study in dogs. And again, it's a modifiable risk factor. I can choose to be more active. I can't choose my genetic risk for Alzheimer's, but I can choose to be more active. So it's it's an interesting area to study. With the data that we currently have being just cross-sectional, it's the same as what I just said about the feeding frequency. We don't know if it's the case that these dogs who are more active are less likely to go ahead and develop dementia at a later time, or perhaps it's the case that once a dog has dementia, you stop exercising it, right? Because it's got dementia and it's confused and you feel it's unsafe and it's unsteady on its feet, or you can't take it to the park because when you call him, he doesn't come back anymore because he gets confused and wanders off. So, so it could be the case that dogs with dementia don't get exercise, and that's why it looks like dogs who don't have dementia are more active. But it could be the case that there is some protective benefit of exercise on the development of dementia. And over time, we hope to be able to tease those two things apart. 
Yeah, I know we have some work being done at CSU by Stephanie McGrath and Julie Moreno, who are working to test therapeutics for dementia as well in dogs uh, earlier on to see, you know, drug development, what could be helpful. But then also uh, the most important part is developing a diagnostic test for dementia. Because my understanding is we don't currently have any good test when it comes to dogs or humans until we start to see some of those behaviors start to stack up. Yeah, that's right. And so the um, overt dementia behaviors are kind of late in the process, right? So by the time those things manifest externally, the changes to the brain are pretty advanced. It's also true that officially Alzheimer's disease in people remains a, a histopathologic diagnosis. So you can't actually say that that's what a person has unless you do a brain biopsy, which we basically never do in life or, or at the time of autopsy. And so we make the presumptive diagnosis based on the external manifestations and how common the disease is. But in fact, there are a number of causes of dementia that could be happening in a given person who's showing those kinds of signs. And so if that's the state of the art in people, Obviously, the state of the art in veterinary medicine is substantially further behind. And so, yes, I'm aware of um, Dr. McGrath's work on this and, and with some other collaborators, the, the interest in trying to identify, is there actually not just a battery of tests, but perhaps a blood or urine or cerebrospinal fluid marker that you could measure in life that corresponds to these changes that are happening at the microscopic level in the brain that customarily aren't able to be diagnosed until after death. Yes, yes. So I want to get to this idea and hear your perspective on the Dog Aging Project being an open science project. So can you tell us what open science is and why is it important? And with the undertones that this is kind of what makes the Dog Aging Project unique in some ways is it is this open science data project. So can you tell us a little about that? Sure. So open science is the concept that the raw data from research is made available to other people. And this is a core value of the Dog Aging Project. So historically, what has happened with science is a particular group of scientists would, ge would generate some data. And the way the world found out about that was that they analyzed it and published it. And they told the world what they had found and what to think of what they had found. The open science model is that I analyze those data, but you might analyze the data differently, or you might want to analyze the exact same data with one other component that I didn't include in my analysis. And the open science model assumes that that's better for everybody, right? It's better for everybody if I release my raw data to you and you can analyze them and see if you get exactly what I got, or you can analyze them in a slightly different way and see if you get something that's related to what I got. It promotes transparency. It promotes reproducibility. And so it's something that we feel very strongly about. The um, mechanics of it are a little bit tricky, right? Because these are privately owned dogs. These are people's individual pets. And so we go to a lot of effort to ensure that we have de-identified all of the data. They can't be traced back to an individual person or an individual dog or an individual house so that owners can feel secure in sharing with us what's going on in the lives of their dogs without the concern that their names would ever be released or their dog's names would ever be released. And so that's a really important part of what we do. The other thing that's important with open data, especially on this scale, is that we want to make sure we're releasing data we're very confident in. 
So we have a very large data team, um, IT expertise, uh, data structure expertise. And so at the end of each calendar year, that group takes a look at all the data we've obtained in that calendar year, and they curate the data to make sure that we've identified what's missing, we've identified any systematic errors in data entry, and we've clarified what each of the variables are in the data set so that a person can walk up to the data set and use it, right? We could release our data in a great big pile that nobody can do anything with, but that's not helpful. And so our data team curates the data carefully, takes them several months to do that at the end of a given calendar year. And then they release that curated data to the team internally so that we can begin to do some analysis with our own data. And then annually in about January of every year, we release that most recently curated data set. It's our goal that other researchers will use the data. And that's the easiest thing. And the first thing that's already happening is researchers can apply for access to the data and they go to the Terra platform, which is at the Broad Institute, and they access the data there and they can analyze it there, download certain parts of it and whatever they want to do. But over time, it's really important to us that these data are not just available to PhDs and data analysts and people with expertise in big data. We want to make our data available in a digestible form to folks earlier in their science careers, right? So folks in PhD programs or college or community colleges or high schools or even K through 12, so that we've we've generated these inherently interesting data about dogs. People love dogs. My career depends upon it. People love dogs. And so if we could encourage interest in the sciences by making our raw data available to people early in their scientific careers, perhaps people who don't have access to laboratory experiences because they're in grade school, or perhaps there are folks at community colleges where there's not a big wet bench lab for them to do experiments, but we can provide data that they can actually do raw analyses on, not recreating somebody else's analysis, but doing their own analysis um, and making it possible with increasing support of our data resources for people earlier in their scientific careers to access these data. So it's a super important part of the project. It's, it's very important to me personally, and, and I agree with you. I think it's one of the things that's quite unique about the Dog Agent Project. Yes, I'm already imagining, you know, like the fourth grader learning coding or something. <laughs> right. Access, I mean, I, yeah, having access to these data sets. Right. I think learning to code, learning to do math, learning to do statistics. Imagine when you took statistics. I don't know when you took statistics. I know when I took statistics. And, and mostly you used solved problems, other people's solved problems to resolve them, to learn how these statistical tests performed. That's not interesting. That's not even science, right? That's recipe following. What if you could learn to do statistics by analyzing actual raw data that no one else had yet analyzed because you were curious? I think that the power and the meaning of what you would take from your statistics course would be so much greater. Um, and, and I feel that way about, about biology lab too, right? Or chemistry lab. You used to go into chemistry lab and you would make a compound according to a recipe. That's like, that's like cooking brownies. That's not science. It's not discovery. And I think our data create the opportunity to put actual discovery of new knowledge, discovery of new analyses into academic laboratory settings at an earlier point, which I think would be terrific for, for young folks or early career folks just starting out. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I spent 
some time in my career thus far, the few jobs I've had working in science education. And it really is cool to see the way that science education, math education, all of it is turning and taking. Because when I was coming up, same as you, we didn't have stuff like this. And now we're seeing high schoolers that are working with companies in a partnership and they're doing a project in their class that like benefits this company. And how cool would it be <laughs> if Dog Asian Project could have outcomes like that too? I, that's why it's such a unique, unique way to set up your, your research. And I think it's so valuable as well. I totally agree with you. And, you know, and I think we recognize that science is important to the future of the planet. And I get sad when I hear, especially young people say, well, I don't like science or I'm not good at science. If their experience of science has not included any opportunity to discover something, then they haven't experienced science. They've experienced memorization or following rules or following recipes, but that's not science. And I think the inspirational part about science is the discovery. And if our classroom experiences don't include the opportunity for authentic discovery, we're missing the chance to inspire young scientists. And so, yeah, I think that um, some of the types of learning modules that have been created recently, as you mentioned, some of the corporate partnerships or other research partnerships. And when I say the Dog Aging Project and its open science approach is unique, it's unique in veterinary medicine, but there are lots of open science projects developing in the human medical and human medical research side. And so I think that this is a future trajectory for lots of scientific endeavors, which I think is terrific. So, so we're coming to the end of our conversation and I, I want to make sure, is there anything I'm not asking you that you think is important that we need to add to this conversation? Um, well, I always like to remind everybody that the Dog Aging Project is wide open for enrollment. We're still enrolling. We intend this to be a forever study, and we're enrolling dogs anywhere in the country, all ages, sizes, types, and health status. We sometimes encounter folks who think that their dog's not eligible for the project because it's fill in the blank, too old, too young, too sick, too whatever. They're all welcome. We want them all. So anybody who's listening who hasn't signed up, dogagingproject.org, and nominate your dog. We'd love to have you. Um, and I also would say that it's fun to be here and it's fun to talk about the project as, as one of its founders, but we recently had our, our annual meeting and every time we meet as a group, I'm astounded by the skill and competence and diversity of my colleagues. And also we get the occasion to actually tally up the total number of people currently on the project. And as of this annual meeting, there are 117 of us. So it's um, an increasingly big group. And of course, none of what I've talked about today would be possible without all of those people. So I want to make sure that everybody is clear on the power and, and enthusiasm of our whole team for this project. Yes. Oh, that's so great to hear. So last question, the question I ask everyone who comes on the show, what makes you most excited for the future of aging research from your perspective on the Dog Aging Project? So I think the thing that excites me the most is, is a pretty practical thing as a dog owner, dog lover, and dog veterinarian. I am excited about our ability to increasingly understand what the aging experience of dogs is and, and get rid of this experience that you and I have alluded to several times in this conversation that something is, well, it's just old age, right? Well, this, we expect he's just getting old. Well, this, you know, this was going to happen. He's just getting old. 
I think that there is a way for us to acknowledge the inherent mortality of ourselves and our dogs while also saying, let's maximize the joy and the value of every minute that we have. And yes, he is just getting old, but that doesn't mean there's not something we can do to understand or support or care for the dog, whether we can adapt the way we work with the dog, the way we manage the dog, the way we feed the dog, the way we assist the dog, as well as adapting our expectations about what might happen next for that dog. But I think we can transform this conversation away from kind of a resignation or acceptance. Well, it's just old. That's just what happens and transform it into a way to maximize the joy. And I hope that we're doing the same thing for ourselves, right? So by learning these things about dogs and finding ways to maximize the joy of of every minute of our dogs' lives, we will be able to translate those experiences to people and do the same things for ourselves. Katie, thank you for sharing this last hour or so with me. I really enjoy this conversation. And again, just so, so honored that I could have time to speak with you and, and learn about this from your perspective. So thanks again. Yeah, my pleasure. It was really fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.